Welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Nadia Popovich. In this installment of our bi-monthly podcast, Science in the City takes you outside of the Academy to the World Science Festival, which ran from June 1st through 5th here in New York City. It brought together some of the world's top scientific minds for five days of discussions, debates, film, music, workshops, and a lot more. But what really piqued my interest was an event from longtime festival supporter, actor and director Alan Alda. It was billed as Improv for Scientists. Yep, you heard me right. Improv for Scientists. And no, it's not just clowning around. It's helped dozens of scientists become better communicators so far. And that's very important today, says Alda. Here he is at his lecture on the first official day of the World Science Festival. You've got to be able to communicate better with the public, with funders, and with one another scientists. And, and I think they're all important. You know, we live at a time when some of the greatest moments in science are occurring right now that have ever occurred. And it, it's at the same time that we have such a rise in anti-intellectualism, anti-science, irrational thinking. And he says that's a communication problem. And Aldo should know. He spent a large chunk of his career in science communication. Though he first became well-known as Hawkeye on the hit 70s TV show MASH, he more recently spent 11 years hosting PBS's Scientific American Frontiers, followed by the miniseries The Human Spark. During that time, Alda interviewed hundreds of scientists on the forefront of some of the most interesting research out there. But all those years of talking to scientists got him to thinking about the greater communication problem between science and the general public today. So he started to teach scientists how to communicate better for themselves through acting, or improv more specifically. And it resulted in his collaboration with Stony Brook University to start the Center for Communicating Science. Right before the World Science Festival, I got a chance to sit down with Alda, along with Brian Green, co-founder and organizer of the festival, who is also professor of physics and mathematics at Columbia University. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. X over five equals twelve. X equals? That would be Green and Alda testing out my microphone. So to begin, uh, Mr. Green, if you could tell me a little bit about how you founded this festival and what's going on this year. Well, Tracy Day and I founded the festival back in 2008, and we quickly approached Alan to see if he was interested in participating, and it was exciting to us that he was, and we've basically gone forward from there. And the main reason why we founded the festival was to provide an arena where the general public can come and experience the drama of science, an experience of science that's different from the classroom, which frankly usually turns people off, makes them feel either intimidated or bored. And the point of the World Science Festival's programs is to show that science is a great story. And Mr. Alda, the lecture you're going to be doing for the World Science Festival is actually on uh, helping scientists sort of communicate their ideas and research um, to the public. What we'll be doing is showing how we work with scientists in one area. One of the things we do at Stony Brook University, where I helped start the Center for Communicating Science, we teach young scientists of various kinds of communication, various kinds of writing, 
But as far as personal presentation is concerned, where, where the scientist gets up in front of an audience and talks to them, we have a kind of innovative way of getting them more comfortable, and that's teaching them improvising. And it seems odd that you would combine science with improvising. However, it really seems to work, and the scientists love it, and the courses that we teach in all, in all aspects of communication are all oversubscribed at Stony Brook. So it's really catching on, and I'm very glad to see it because I love it that scientists themselves want to communicate with more clarity, more presence, make a better connection with the public. And the people who teach scientists get it too. So this is really great. And how did you sort of come up with this idea of teaching improv to scientists to make them better communicators? It came up in a natural way. I was doing my science show, Scientific American Frontiers, and I was talking to a scientist who was very interesting. Her work was fascinating. And at one point, I think we were just having a real conversation, and it was very warm, and she had a conversational tone, and I was understanding her. And I think at a certain moment she realized that what she was telling me was a lot like a lecture that she was used to giving, and suddenly she turned away from me and looked right into the camera and started lecturing the camera. And her vocabulary changed, the tone of voice changed. I couldn't understand what she was saying. In an instant, this happened. So I coaxed her back with some questions, and her voice got warm again, and she was communicating with me. And then she turned back to the camera and got incomprehensible to the camera. So I realized something's going on here. There, there's, it's possible to talk in a way that's, that makes use of these, these tools we have as humans of superb communication where we listen to one another, we read one another's faces, we, we communicate through the tone of voice and not just through abstract concepts. So I thought, how does that develop? And I remembered in my own life that when I studied improvising, I noticed that everybody I knew who had spent some time improvising became more charismatic, and they communicated better, not just on the stage, but in life as well. So I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to try that on scientists? And I did an experiment first at at USC, and I brought in some engineering students. And in three hours, they went from talking about their work before we improvised to talking about their work after we improvised, and they were much clearer, much more present. The real them was there. And we've, now we've, we've done a lot of work at, uh, at Stony Brook University. And it, it really is amazing. These young scientists just love to get up and talk about their work and make contact with the audience. They no longer look over their heads and pretend the audience isn't there. They want to see their faces because they're getting the essence of the communication from the faces they're looking at. It's a two-way street now. And can you give us an example of a couple of the types of improv you do? Like, what are some specifics that you would teach these scientists? You know, it's, it's hard to talk about because you, you don't get the full flavor unless you see it. But instead, we're going to let you hear it. Here's a great example of the sort of improv they do from two of the young scientists who performed at the World Science Festival event. It's an exercise called What's the Relationship? In it, one scientist has to explain their job to another with a specific relationship in mind, say, a mother to a daughter, and the other one has to pick up on that relationship without knowing what it is. Here we go. 
something's really been bothering me. I go out on these boats about every week for the past four years, okay. and I'm running these plankton toes. And I really got into zooplankton because they're really tiny little organisms, and I don't hear them scream. It's not like I'm killing a bunch of fish or harpooning <laughs> whales or anything for my research. But I, I've, I've started to do the numbers. And it's just that every plankton toe, I'm averaging about 200 individuals, including jellyfish, all sorts of things, per liter. And I'm grabbing about 10,000 liters. And so when you, when you figure that I'm running four toes a day every week for the past four years, and you calculate 10,000 you know, liters times 200 individuals per liter, I think I've killed about six billion organisms <laughs> in my academic lifetime. And, oh my gosh. You, know, you know, like I said, I, I, I'm overall a good person. I just, I need some counsel. It's, it's weighing on me at night. So I am your professor. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm hoping you know more than anyone else who, who oh you God. are. I mean, okay, so the way, the way, the rule is, we, did, we didn't get a chance to, to, okay. to, to explain this yet, but the rule is that you don't say what the relationship, you behave in a way to her that it's clear that you know what the relationship is. Uh, and okay. if you're wrong, she'll, 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 try, to, she'll try to set you straight. I've right, spoken right. to my professor, if that's what you mean. I mean, she just laughs at me. I mean, my God, she's probably killed trezillion organisms in her lifetime. And what such exercises do, says Alda, is help scientists learn how to connect with each other on stage, which can then be carried over into public speech. And that helps them eliminate the disconnect with their audience. But now, back to the interview. Well... Why do you think that there is this disconnect between the public and scientists lately? And what do you think are the areas that mostly need help in science communication and that things like the festival and like your classes are really going to help? Well, I think the problem really goes back to school. Most of us have had experiences of science in the classroom that really left us cold. I can't tell you the number of people that have come up to me when I've given a lecture of some sort on string theory or extra dimensions, and basically they're thankful that science is being given back to them because they feel like it was kind of stolen away when their experience in school turned them off. Okay. So the real point of everything that we're doing, everything that Alan's doing, everything that we're doing with the festival, is to try to give experiences of science that allow the general public to recognize how wonderful science is, how impactful it is in their everyday lives, how dramatic the stories are, and how absolutely vital it is for them to engage with science because going forward in the 21st century, all the major decisions from climate change to stem cells to what we're going to do with nuclear proliferation, from space travel to nanotechnology, all of these are scientific issues. And you really can't have a democracy if people aren't going to engage with the underlying science that will inform the decision-making process. So it's a real vital thing that we want to have happen. I think um, what Brian said is really important, that that, um, school traditionally has not introduced science in a way that helps people think scientifically or think about science as part of their lives, it tends to be more like broccoli. And, you know, you're supposed to do it. You have to do it whether you like it or not. This, take this, it's good for you. But there's another element that when you add to this, things get even more complex. There, in, the, in the last 50 or 100 years, science has become 
so um, specialized that sometimes two scientists in different fields can't quite understand one another because sometimes <laughs> a lot of the time a lot of time okay <laughs> I don't want to say more than I know but I've even heard from a mathematician that two mathematicians in the same field sometimes can't understand one another because they're doing work that's so it's not it's cl- to us it seems right next to the other person's work but it's miles away because they're so specialized Often scientists will use the same word with different meanings, and there's all kinds of confusion that results. So the public who has been brought up on broccoli, science as broccoli, rather than science as a thrilling adventure equivalent to learning literature, learning music, something that gives you pleasure. It's really fun to hear a brain work whether it's your own brain or somebody else's brain, that's just thrilling to hear. So if, if they're brought up without that pleasure, without knowing to, how to look for that pleasure and enjoy it, and then you throw at them all this specialized jargon that even scientists themselves, unless they're, they're in the same lab with the other scientists, are having trouble understanding, you have a, a real mess. So something like the World Science Festival that brings together the smartest people in the world and puts them in a situation where they can actually communicate what they do to a hungry public who really wants to know, I think it's, it's groundbreaking and it will eventually make us happy and save our lives. I don't know which one is, should come first. <laughs> and there's been this push in the media for science reporting, and it's become very popular in the past few years, but also a lot of blame is put on media for miscommunicating science often. And is that why you think it's important for scientists to be able to better communicate for themselves? I, I, I think that I, I personally benefit an enormous amount from good uh, science writers who are, who are not themselves scientists but have devoted their lives to trying to understand it and communicate it. And I really appreciate them. I also feel it's extremely important for scientists themselves to be able to speak in their own voices without any mediation from anybody else. Uh, I don't think one should replace the other, but there are times when a scientist has a chance to address the public and then talks in a foreign language. And that doesn't do that person's science any good, and it doesn't do the public any good. The public has to learn by hearing scientists speak in a way that reflects how they think. The public has to learn how to think like a scientist. We have to understand, for instance, when we read in the paper, orange peels are good for you, and then six months later, orange peels can kill you. Or, you know, I'm making that up. But things change. Every time we, we hear a, about a study, too many of us think, oh, well, that's what it is now. And you hear people tell you things about the way the world is from some study they read about 30 years ago, which was one study. That science is an accumulation of understanding, and it's not establishing the flag on the truth once and for all, in my opinion. Am I saying it wrong, Brian? No, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, what we find is as we understand things better, we have to reevaluate things that we thought we understood in the past. 
often that does not mean that we simply toss away the past, but we do expand the range of things that we're able to grasp. Newton is still a vital part of our understanding of physics, but Einstein has gone beyond Newton, and quantum mechanics has gone further still, and we're hoping that string theory or something like it is going yet to a wider range of phenomenon. And that's what science is. It's the march toward an ever greater expanse of phenomenon that we can understand. I think it'd be really nice in our private lives if we could approach our lives a little bit more the way scientists approach their work. If, for instance, before acting on an opinion, we looked for the evidence that would apply to that opinion. That would be nice. Wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) And instead of insisting that our opinion is correct and getting into a fight with somebody over it, we traded an appreciation of the evidence we all have about that issue. We might actually get somewhere if we did that. And, uh, Brian, you seem to be a pretty good communicator and you're a scientist. How did you get here without such a course as Alan is now offering? Well, I took the Alan Alda course in <laughs> Improper Scientist. I was the, no, I, I didn't actually. But, um, you know, I find in my own work, and this is the serious point, that I don't really feel like I understand what I'm doing if my understanding comes from the mathematics. That's typically what I do, equations and calculations. But alongside those calculations, I feel like I need to build mental imagery that gives me a picture of what the math is telling me. And when I talk about these ideas, I rely on those mental pictures. I strip away the math and wrap those pictures in either an analogy or an anecdote or a story, and I find that that's how I can get complex ideas across. So it's really, I find my own research methods that help me when I'm trying to talk about these abstract ideas. And Alan, if you had just like a 30-second advice you could give scientists for better communication, what would that be? I, I want scientists to be able to communicate with the public the way they can communicate in their most relaxed moments, talking to a friend face-to-face, where the real them comes out, because that's how we learn. We learn by looking at someone's face and listening to their voice. And if if we're being lectured to and we're being spoken to in a language we don't understand, we're not going to get it. And the, the most wonderful moments I've had with scientists is where they really tried to get me to understand it because they tried to figure out where I was in my understanding, and they built on that. And that's, that's a two-way street of communication. I think that's 45 seconds. <laughs> Thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Science and the City, a nonprofit program from the New York Academy of Sciences. We appreciate your continued support, and as always, we would love your feedback. Find us online at www.scienceandthecity.org or write to us at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. Stay tuned for more science around the city coming at you all summer, and we'll see you next time.